Okay, <laughs> today we are going to start with a song. Uh, welcome to class, and uh, this class is Canoeing the Mountains. Um, I was asked by a couple guys yesterday, wait, this isn't an outdoorsman class? Uh, it is not, it's about leadership and leadership change. Uh, and one of the things that we're doing is we are experiencing orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So for some of you, you'll experience some things that are a little bit odd at Pepperdine uh, lectures, although I see that several venues now have some kind of instrumental worship involved in them. And we'll talk about why that is. But to begin today, let's stand. We're going to sing the song, The Lion and the Lamb. And it is okay and preferable if you rhythmically clap at the appropriate times. And if you need to know those times, just watch me and I'll, I'll leave. So this is Piper Dissler. She is our worship leader at Northwest Church. Uh, she has a background in Messianic Synagogue. Uh, and I told a little bit of that story yesterday. This is Maxwell Canlis. Happens to be my nephew and a phenomenal musician. So here we're going to dive in. And this might be a little too loud. Well, just tell me if it's too... Well, you tell me.
which is a discussion of adaptive and technical change. Now, if you're not uh, reading about this and you're in leadership, you need to start reading about it. It is a conversation that happen is happening in the business world, in the religious realm, in universities, everywhere they're talking about this because in the changing world, for example, the church world is changing, yes? Uh, metrics across the board are heading the wrong direction. And the churches that I talk to, the pastors I talk to in those churches that are seeing growth, when you get them out of the front crowd and you're talking one-on-one -on -one or heart-to-heart -heart as pastors, they will tell you, yes, we are primarily absorbing churches that are going out of business. There are a few, there are a few that can see actual overall numeric growth from conversions. But those are the rare, rare birds. So churches are going to have to learn how to adapt or die. And this is what we feel. If you don't feel that, if you're not picking up on that, uh, then I don't know where you are. Because it is, uh, is cross-denominational. Churches of Christ specifically are feeling it. Uh, I told several of you yesterday, if you want to read a report that will wake you up, Email Tim at teamimp.com. That's Tim Woodruff. And ask him, I'd like to see the report. And it is uh, scary to read that in 2016, we had some 13,800 congregations. In about the next eight years, that's going to be whittled down to about six to 7,000. Uh, and that still includes the Hills and North Northwest Church, all of those that have name changes but still affiliate with the Churches of Christ. Uh, that includes instrumental and acapella. Uh, it's not like we've taken and removed people from the kingdom of God, if you will, and said, oh, that's why it's dissipating. It is across the board. And it's scary to see what's happening. I grew up in the acapella Churches of Christ, so you know. Uh, grew up in a very conservative church, not an anti-church. If you don't know what anti-church is, God bless your soul. Just sing to the glory of God. Uh, you don't need an education on that, uh, but went to Abilene Christian University, moved out to California in 1988 to do ministry out in California for, on the West Coast. For 20 years, we're in California on our way to the Puget Sound. We just took a 22-year detour. Then, uh, then praise the Lord, Milt left Northwest Church and opened up the door for somebody else to be blessed by that church. And that's the honor that I have. 
But when I stepped in, it was a merged church between a Christian church and an uh, acapella church. Christ, I think I lost that again. Uh, we'll see if it comes back up in just a second. Did it come back up yet? Uh, if you can do your magic you did yesterday. Uh, yeah, see. <laughs> Jiggle the wire. Jiggle the wire. We're in a state-of-the-art facility, and it comes down to wiggling the wire. I love it. Uh, so what's happening now is different. That's important. What's happening now is different. This isn't a minor shift. This is the following the path of the European churches and the closing down of churches across the globe that is now being felt front and center in churches around America. It's not just churches of Christ. Everybody's talking about it. So uh, Todd Bolsinger uses this great illustration from the Lewis and Clark expedition. And they had 300 years of exploration history in journals. Uh, Jefferson uh, gathered together 300 of the world's experts on expeditions. And they were all convinced that if they went up to the headwaters of the Missouri, they would be able to take the canoes out of the water, walk some distance, maybe over a couple of hills or maybe one mountain, and find the headwaters of a stream that would flow all the way back down to the Pacific Ocean, and they would be able to merge the East Coast and West Coast. They were convinced of it. Every expert agreed. Until they, they had the great story of drinking out of Missouri, the headwaters, a place that no one had ever been except for Native Americans or First Nations peoples. And when they came over the rise, the Rockies opened up before their eyes. And the explorers, some of the bravest explorers known to man said, we had never seen anything like it. We didn't know anything like that existed. And in that moment, that's when they knew that the canoes were not going to be any use in the mountains. But believe it or not, there were some people in their expedition that wanted to carry the canoes across the Rockies. Because they were just sure that this would be true. Okay, so with that, he uses that illustration. Here's the key phrase to remember from this. Nothing behind us has prepared us for what's ahead of us. Okay, say that with me. Nothing behind us has prepared us for what is ahead of us. One more time. Nothing behind us has prepared us for what is ahead of us. So all around the church right now, we find people doing the same thing. Let's go back and resurrect. Remember when women's ministry used to be great. Remember when men's ministry used to rock the house. Remember when the youth ministry used to be this way. And they go back and grab all of what we were doing 30 years ago. And they try it and it doesn't work. And then we ask, why not? Every now and then you have one that ignites in a specific congregation that's fine. But as a strategy, they simply don't work. And that's because culture has changed so much. So here's his five key moves. The world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. No one is going to follow you off the map unless they trust you on the map. Now, I want to make a comment about this that I didn't talk about yesterday. Uh, Todd Bolsinger does a great job of saying this is not, uh, the relational piece of this is not about uh, where you are tending to the individual heartfelt needs of individual members. Okay? He's not negating that. He's not setting it aside, but he's clarifying that this is not the kind of trust they're talking about. The trust is in leaders that are trustworthy in the right navigational paths of leadership. They can see the path. Now, the relational trust obviously supports that. 
But you can be the most caring, wonderful, pastoral kind person in the world. And if they don't trust you as a leader to navigate this world that's in front of us, that over the last 10, 15 years, they're not going to trust you to go into the Rockies, if that makes sense. In uncharted territory, adaptation is everything. This is where we left you yesterday, is learning to adapt, to be the leader that says, we are going to pull the canoes out of the creek, we're going to set them on the side of the path, and if we ever come back here, we'll have canoes to take us back down. But they will do us no good, we will get across the Rockies, we will take trees down, we will burn them, we'll fashion new canoes, if and when we find headwaters that will take us to the Pacific. But right now, what we have to do is something very difficult, is let go of the canoes, all right? Now, I wanna invite one of my elders, Mike Van Tyne up again. And Mike, I'm gonna throw you a curveball today, which you're used to, but I, I got a little bit of a rest, and so I started thinking, oh, I can do whatever I want, it's my class. Uh, this is one of our elders, he's a graduate of Pepperdine University. Uh, he's written, written a book. I, again, I liked your best title, your first title best, but Confessions of a Church Christ Elder, right? Yes. The editor made him change it to the Journey of Joy. Journey to Joy. Journey to Joy. Okay. The first one inhabits some pain that is very real, okay? Uh, now, real quick, though, you've not just been part of the Church of Christ. What other fellowships have you been part of? It, post post his CFC background, okay? While at Pepperdine. Oh, and they want you in the mic more. While at Pepperdine, a whole group of us at Pepperdine got involved with the Jesus Movement. Within a year, that kind of merged together with the Charismatic Movement. Once you get involved in the Charismatic Movement, that opens up a whole kind of other movements, including Word of Faith Movement, all the other old Pentecostal movements, and before long, our family was in a Presbyterian church. Go figure. Pentecostal and Presbyterian is a normal yes, shift. They, they really work together well. <laughs> and so it was, it really caused a little bit of grief for Milt when we became elders and one of the other men on staff choked because I had been an elder at a Presbyterian church. And I didn't resign as an elder. I simply put that on the back burner because we were migrating from that congregation to something else. So one of the things that began to happen at Fuller is I started getting something in my ear about Jewish people coming to the Lord and starting Messianic congregations. And that started in the 70s when I was at Fuller and has exploded worldwide now. So there's, I don't know how many thousands here in the United States and hundreds in Israel itself. People that are Jewish and Gentile coming together, worshiping Jesus as Messiah. So that's just a quick overview of some of my background. Now, Mike has had to go through several uh, adaptations in his leadership. Um, you imagine being in a Presbyterian church that's a radically different than Churches of Christ. Also, though you serve as an elder at Overlake, which is an independent Christian church, but a mega church of mega churches, right? At the time, how large? 6,000. 6,000. Uh, and we're not going to go into detail, so let's leave names out of it. But that congregation was cranking along until a tragic event happened, and I want mm -hmm. you to talk about that event real quick. Something happened with the senior pastor 
not unlike what you might hear about in Roman Catholic churches. Mm. Uh, just caused an incredible rift within the congregation. The elders didn't really know how to manage their way through that. And consequently, most of the congregation ends up going to other churches around the area. And they went into a seven year period of transition. They're a nice healthy congregation now, probably between 2,500 and 3,000, but they aren't the 6,000. But we now have a lot of other large congregations that have kind of taken their place. Many of them are daughter churches of Overlake. Yeah. And what to me was really funny, when our congregation merged with another small dying Christian church, the Shoreline Christian Church, we found out that the Shoreline Christian Church had started a new congregation called Overlake. <laughs> Way back, back in the 70s, in 71, 72. And by the time we started attending there in 1980, it was 3,000. And by the time we left in 1996, it was 6,000. Mm. And one of their daughter churches is probably between six and 7,000 on a weekend now. And they keep spawning new congregations. And if you are jealous that I have an elder like that, you can eat your heart out. So thank you, Mike. Uh, what's interesting, though, in, in that conversation, one of the reasons I wanted to brought up is it, it would actually be a pretty effective strategy of Satan to get the American churches to group into very few super large mega churches and then just take out the central leader one at a time. And in the Seattle area, we have seen that at least three times in my uh, experience up there where that happens. Now the kingdom is a kingdom that won't be shaken. So out of the bad comes good. So out of that devastation came two or three church plants that are of size that are also very large. Uh, but one thing we're gonna have to adapt to is an understanding that the optimal church size, and there's studies out there, you can look at this, optimal church size for an American church is a thousand people. The reason for that is, is you don't have to build a facility up that costs you thousands of dollars just to power up every day. Uh, there are many people, including uh, the people out of Willow Creek's organization, that believe one day we're going to have all of these large buildings being donated to the local civic unit because it is just too expensive to maintain the overhead of them. Uh, so Northwest did what our dream was, was to build a modest size facility. It's uh, 33,000 square feet. Uh, the reason I say modest size is because if you go to uh, Tennessee or you go even to some places in Southern California, our entire facility is smaller than the youth facility. And so I'm aware of what some of these mega churches build that are incredible and they're fabulous buildings. But the other conversation I have with those pastors when I talk to them, now that you've done it, now that you're there, now that you're in the building, what are your thoughts? And to a man, everyone would have said the same thing. If I could go back, I'd never do it again. The gazillions of dollars it took to build this could have quicker been invested in planting churches that could find facilities easily that would hold up to a thousand people in one to two, three services and simply be able to have the church growing that way. I believe one of the adaptations we're going to have to embrace is the idea that churches, even if you look at a mother church and daughter and son churches, and that's language I did not know until about a year and a half ago. 
uh, a sun church is, guess what? It's a church that looks like the parent church. Has the same name. Has the same DNA as father-son language. A daughter church will often, as our daughters do, marry somebody else, take a new name, have a different look. And so that language comes into play here in, in the way that we're designing multi-campus churches, multi-site churches. And it's a beautiful thing, and there's a real tension going on right now. Do we create more churches that are video venue only without the live preaching versus those that have live pastoral and preaching? Boy, you can make an argument on both sides. My point is this. If I was Satan, I could not be happier if I can get everybody attending these big, huge mega churches. And all I got to do is target one guy and take that guy down. And then I have the sheep that are scattered. Uh, We've been, how many years since Driscoll's thing happened? Five, six? Uh, Seattle has still not recovered from the Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll. Uh, and that wasn't a moral failing. That was a questionable financial dealing. And it is still not recovered. Uh, Mars Hill contingent, the remnants that have formed new congregations, will tell you that they believe 55% of the people that were part of the Mars Hill kingdom will never walk inside a church ever again because they feel so betrayed. We are dealing with trust levels in our culture of church at all time high issues. So um, anyway, I wanted you to know that. Now yesterday, if you guys would come back up real quick, Piper. Yesterday, uh, what we did is we went into this uncharted territory and I did a reorientation, reorientation experiment that we're going to do today as well. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing a, a hymn that is very familiar to you. And uh, we're going to have you stay seated for this, which many of you will like. And let me get down to that real quick, and I'll give you the mic. Sing along. For the beauty of the earth.
Nobody's going to say that until it was Sunday morning worship and you're not a Pepperdine, right? Uh, and I will tell you, I, you know, at age 29, I was preaching unity and cross-denominational stuff. If you had told me I'd be working with uh, a female worship pastor from Messianic synagogue background, I would have told you that's even a stretch for me. But it's been beautiful to experience. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more. Okay, so the next one uh, from Todd Bolsinger's uh, book is this. You can't go alone, but you haven't succeeded unless you've survived the sabotage. <laughs> okay, I like this one. Uh, he talks a little bit in his book uh, about an event where he was getting pats on the back, hugs, high fives. People in his denomination were saying, that is amazing. Your work on this is incredible. And then when the General Assembly got together to vote on it, not one of the people on the committee that were a part of giving him the high fives spoke up even in support of what he did. And it got voted down. Then all the same people that right before they went in the General Assembly that said, your work is landmark work. They came out and pat him on the back and said, that's just how we work. That is deflating for leaders. But churches need to know what's coming. Uh, one of the things about the pause on that song, the first Sunday we did it at Northwest, which I think is since you've been there. So it was in the fall, I think we did it for the first time. And all the acapella people, you know, are like, oh, we got this song now. We know this one, you know. And they're starting to do it like the English March. And, and, the, and the, the, the viola and the guitar was just painting this beautiful tapestry of mellow meditation and all of our acapella background people are there in their four-part harmony and they're rocking it and they miss the pauses and it was so bad that eventually it was all the people that are new to northwest since it was an acapella church and they're patting their neighbors going you're singing the wrong song <laughs> right and uh and it was one of those beautiful moments now when we do it uh to a person so far that i've talked to they say I have experienced something new in that song that I did not experience 
by taking it out of the marching mode. Disorientation, reorientation. It's something we have to do as leaders. Now, leaders need the freedom to be honest and clear about what's coming. Uh, we were talking about uh, the first service that they did that, and it was, it was kind of chaotic in the worship. <laughs> so I told Piper, I said, they're, they're singing something that they know for you know, their whole lifetime. So you got to kind of warn So second service, she warned them, or I warned them, somebody did. We're going to do the song, and here's what's going to happen. And second service went so much better. They were able to kind of hold back and see what happened. Leaders need to be able to tell the church what is going to happen without instant pushback from the very people that they're telling. And this is something that uh, I think is important. Leaders need the freedom to be honest and clear without constant pushback over what 99% of are all technical changes. I know I didn't say that right. For example, time changes in worship. Sunday we're about to announce time changes in worship. That should not be a big deal. But it can predictably be a ripple that runs through the course of the entire kingdom of God in some churches. Uh, this is kind of funny because I was talking about we're actually just going to have service shortened up a little bit. And the only people who will be affected are the ones who get to come 15 minutes later for first service. So at worst case scenario, they're arriving 15 minutes early. And I promise you some of them will arrive 15 minutes early and they'll say nobody told us about this. And we'll say, yeah, we've only announced it for four and a half weeks. There's a church that is uh, a mega church in Nashville that has a policy that all decisions are made and announced no further out than three weeks before the change. And that includes launching a brand new campus. I was like, why do you do that? They said, because we want our church from its inception to be flexible with necessary changes that are strategically made to reach the world around us. We've gotten so in the habit of requiring lead time that lead time is sucking the leadership out of our leaders because we need the flexibility to be able to do that. So adaptive churches can do this. Time changes, order of worship, when we study our Bibles, how we study our Bibles, integrated translations. These need to not be adaptive change conversations they should be eh, what's the big deal now i can tell you there is a big deal and i'm going to have this illustrated with these two again uh and let me get this set up for you guys so uh this year this year i did a series uh so give them a sample of the kind of thing you do when you talk your messianic synagogue thing <laughs> like one of your songs just do one of your songs that you have memorized Oh boy, I have them all memorized. Yeah, no, no, no. One of them that you have memorized. I know you have two memorized. I, I don't know. You don't know. You put on a spot like that. Yeah, right. right. Like yesterday, you said you want me to read Psalm 132. Yeah, I, I had it written down. You had it written down? Oh, I, I had it as you memorized it. No. So she will read. Oh, you have it with you? Yeah. Oh, okay. She will read out of a Messianic synagogue translation. Well, and that's, yeah, Messianic. Bible. And it will throw people off. Like, why does she keep saying, I don't know? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so, it's, so this is Psalms 34, 9. Taste and see how good Adonai is. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear Adonai his Kedoshim, which is his holy ones, for those who fear him lack nothing. Yeah. And so the translation is, you know, is, is very different. 
because you get a lot of the original Hebrew and the names of God and taking over your flesh. No, no, it's a book. It's what I want. So uh, I wanted to do I wanted to do a year focused on two things: uh, reach your know your God, reach your world. And it dawned on me that we could work together to benefit the entire congregation in that series because I contend that you can't know somebody without first introducing yourself by name. And so we needed to know God's names. He's introducing he's usually saying three different names uh, in the Bible to represent who he is. They all contain a characteristic. So. Uh, I said, let's do this. I'm going to preach from this. I'm going to use a, a translation called the names of God. That every time there's a name of God, it has its original language. And so I would use that so people would get to understand what they were. But as we led up to that, she said, oh, I wrote a song based on the names of God. And so I want you to hear this, okay? Uh, this is, you know, don't try to sing. I want you to hear it.
preaching, he answered, no one walks down the road whistling or singing or humming a sermon. <laughs> and he was so right. Uh, so the illustration there comes from the idea that as leaders have to be able to adapt and change, and what they really need is the support of their congregation. They need support of their leadership. Uh, if you trust someone to bring the word of the Lord to you in your culture and in your climate, that you believe has a calling to do it, one of the things you ought to consider not doing is constantly fighting them. Uh, you remember the biblical story where they're trying to rebuild the walls and they have battle from the front and from the back. And so they're having to just constantly protect against the constant people coming at them. I think a lot of pastors today feel that way. Uh, one stat that was just shared with me recently was that when you take all of the undergrad preaching majors in all of our Bible schools, uh, Oklahoma Christian, Harding, ACU, you add them all up. Right now, they know this May there will be 10 preaching majors graduating from all of our organizations combined. Our young men and women do not want to go into ministry in located churches. They're terrified of it because they've seen what happens. We need to be more supportive, more graceful, more intentional in the way we support people. Everybody, then the fifth one is this, everybody will be changed, especially the leader. I've stretched and have been probably the most stretched person through the years that I've been doing full-time ministry. Uh, and you might find that to be shocking that the person who's leading the charge or the person who's saying, hey, we've got to make those adaptive changes. We've got to look at technical changes. We've got to dive in on change. And we have to do it in such a way that we don't chase people off. Uh, constantly feels themselves stretched. But if you are leading people appropriately, you have to stretch yourself, not just the people that you lead. I don't know if you've ever been in an organization or in a church where the leader wants everybody else to stretch, but they are unflexible. They will not flex. Uh, that is an awful situation to be in because after all, change requires adaptation and flexibility on the part of everybody. When leaders make important changes to leave the canoes and grab the mountain climbing gear, it comes with a price and unnecessary resistance in many cases. I'll use one example from our own uh, recent relocation. Uh, some of you know the story, so my apologies if you hear it again. When we decided to buy a new facility, and it was an LA Fitness, we're going to gut it, kind of rebuild it. The question is how much of the LA Fitness do we keep? We ended up keeping... Just to clarify, we ended up keeping the gym. That's where we worship. We also keep the yoga floor where we do student ministry, celebrate recovery, Zumba, and yoga at our church. And it's really a beautiful thing that goes on. So anyway, we're, we're talking about what are we going to do. And I remember being 19, sitting in a required lectureship and hearing some missionary ask the question. If you had one bit of advice for stateside uh, ministers, what would it be? And he said, oh, I, I can tell you right now is uh, we say that the building isn't the church, but then we build these two buildings and we put the name of the church on it and we equate the church with the building. Said in the mission field, we can't own property where he was working. We're not allowed legally to own property. We have to use civic spaces. So I would, I would advise you to build your buildings because it's advantage to you, but put it, give it its own name. So uh, we kind of talked about that for several months in leadership several long months 
And uh, I proposed, uh, we kept looking for names that were .coms, right? So LinwoodChristianCenter.com, we, we own it for $4.99 a, a year, $4.99 a year. Uh, we kept throwing names at it and everything. And, I, and one day I was like, okay, so we say we're about transforming life, transforming community. Community and life have to be part of that. And I said, is there any chance that no one has claimed communitylifecenter.com and can't plugged it in his computer? And he goes, no, it's available. I said, how much? I said, two grand. I said, A, never been owned. B, it's a great name and they know it. They've held on to it for over 15 years. I said, let's buy that name and call our facility the Community Life Center of Linwood. It's where this church happens to meet. It's where a lot of community life happens. We've built a community center where a church happens to meet. So in that conversation, we had about uh, 18 months of pretty heated debate, I think. And Mike, if I get my dates wrong, don't correct me. I like to live in my own story. <laughs> uh, but at one point, I, I got so frustrated. I was like, guys, we have an all-male leadership. So guys, um, I have thrown one name out on the table. And for the last year, we have been able to debate names. And we've excused most of them because they're just bad names. I've just given you one idea. I don't care if that's the name. I care that we choose something intentional. So if you have a better name, do it. But tomorrow, the, the architect needs to know the name to formally list it legally. And one of them said, well, I can't come up with anything else, so let's just go with it. Community Life Center. So move the clock forward. We build the building. It's about a year and a half later. And we're in there. And one of the elders comes up to me and he puts his arm around me. And he goes, Goldman, I don't know why we ever argued with you about naming this the Community Life Center. It's beautiful and it's perfect. And it is doing what it's supposed to do. And I was like, feels pretty good, doesn't it? And I was just sitting there and pulling the arrows out of my back. Just thinking, did I have to, go, did I need to go through that? And the answer is kind of yeah. The answer is kind of yeah. So here, here's the tension. The sabotage happens because people who sabotage good leadership, what are they fighting to maintain? How things are. Or the status quo. How many of you like status quo? Everybody raise your hand. Because trust me, you like status quo. You just don't know where you like static cool, right? For example, some of you are like, you could change things in church every single week, you'd be fine. But if you go to your favorite restaurant and you're not able to order the same exact thing you've ordered for the last decade, you come unglued. What do you mean you took that off the menu? That was my favorite thing. Suddenly you like the status quo. Everybody likes status quo somewhere because we like comfort, not discomfort. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tension. But one of the suggestions I have, and those of you that are taking suggestions for your leadership, is here's a helpful exercise for leadership discussions. When you look at the agenda, ask this question. Is this topic a technical change? Like we're already worshiping with a band, we're gonna add drums. Or is it an adaptive change? We've been an acapella church for 110 years, we're going to add instruments. Which of the two require more time? Adaptive. It requires emotional bandwidth because it's a paradigm shift. 
Technical changes, though, are where the people have studied this. Organizations, including churches, spend most of their time and energy and bandwidth wasted on technical change conversations. Every elder in this room, every person in leadership knows what I'm talking about. Where you sit through a meeting for like two hours and at the end of the meeting you're like, why did we spend so much time talking about that? And everyone, even the one who's spinning it out over and over, is embarrassed that they talked about it that long. When we talk about change, it's important. So I want to talk about some adaptive changes that we have to face uh, in the future of our churches. And one of them uh, is the role of women in leadership. Now, I recently brought this up and I got a couple of leaders that came to me and said, uh, I, I don't think that women's role in leadership is an issue at all at our church. And I just smiled and I said, well, why have three of your elders' wives talked to me about this very topic? Personally, they talked to me. Who? <laughs> I'm not going to give you a witch hunt to go on. And by the way, I should have said witch there. That was bad. Oh, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Piper. Uh, so here, here's, the, here's the issue. Uh, women in our culture are rising up and saying, it's got to stop. And it is abuse. It is glass ceiling. It is inequity in pay. It is mistreatment. It is, and on and on and on and on it goes. And as best I can tell, 95 to 99% of it is 100% legit. Some of it gets off the reservation. But most of it's just true and accurate. One of the things we have to deal with then is the impact on our churches in this culture. There are um, women in our churches. For example, uh, let's just take Piper as an example. I'll use her as an example. Piper is the best worship leader I have ever worked with uh, in, in my history. And that includes one of my very good friends, Jeff Berryman, who told him when we hired her, you're getting an upgrade. And everybody's like, yeah, all right. He goes, no, 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 listen to me, you're getting an upgrade. Uh, but in the church I grew up, an off-key 13-year-old male would be entrusted to lead worship 10 times at 10 services on Sunday before she'd be even allowed to start in on the first measure. And that's a fact. Why? Because she's not gifted, because she's not blessed with the spirit of God, because she's not a Christian, no, but because she is female. That's a, that's a crime. Now, it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I could say that. But I'm here to tell you, we have to deal with that issue in our churches. Now, one of the things you're going to immediately bring up is things that I brought up in the past is, well, what about Paul's model that a elder would be the husband of one wife? Okay. But did you know that Paul's model is not the only model for leadership in the New Testament? The Jerusalem church had a different model. Paul never said, and by the way, every single church in the kingdom of God has to have my model for leadership. He was telling Timothy and Titus, here's how we're planting churches and where you're working. Here's how we're going to appoint leaders. And consequently, who appointed the leaders? Titus and Timothy, the young, the young evangelists. Not the elders. They didn't take a vote in the church. That is all extra biblical stuff. 
We say we're going to go by Paul's model, but we negate at least half of his model. You know, at least have the authenticity if you're going to do it to say, okay, we're going to have a model. Our 30-year-old preacher is going to appoint the elders. Well, we're not going to do that. Right? See, we've got to deal with the fact that we have, like many churches, we're not the only ones, claim we know how to do it right. And the second we can acknowledge that there is no right that's across the board other than Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, and a kingdom that is meant to be one. Until we come to that grip, grips with that, we're not going to be free of this stuff. So, um, role of women is an adaptive change. The best use of our buildings is surprisingly an adaptive change. Why? Because most of our churches would prefer to close their building on Sunday night and not open it again until Wednesday night and close it down again and not open it again until Sunday morning. And it is one of the greatest wastes of real estate space and money in the history of our nation. Public parks are used more than our church buildings. And that's in Seattle where it rains like 98% of the time. Right? So what do we do as stewardship? We're all about stewardship, but we have these buildings. And the reason we don't let the community use our buildings during the week is why? Because I want to set up for my Bible class on Sunday afternoon and walk in on Wednesday and have it exactly the way I left it. It is, if you're going to invest your facility in the community, you better get ready for some debates. You better get ready for some debates. And you know who you're going to be debating? The Christians. Not the world. We, we have community groups come all the time and use the building. They're like, uh, how do we need to leave the room? Oh, we want these chairs in a figure. I could literally do this. We want the chairs and tables in a figure eight and one chair on top of each table. And if you would mop the carpet, we would appreciate it. And they'd say, okay, thank you for the space. But if I tell a person, hey, by the way, I know your class is having a meal in here and it's going to have flies and I call them nits, these little baby flies driving nets. Would you bag that trash up and throw it in there? Don't we have a janitor? We do, but he doesn't work at 9 p.m. on Tuesday night. Well, and he did the next day. And it, just that kind of attitude that we own this stuff. Aren't we the people who say that God owns everything? Aren't we those people? So that is surprisingly an adaptive change that should not be. Another conversation we're going to have to deal with is the sexual orientation discussion. Uh, boy, on the leadership speaker, the, the speaker's series on Wednesday morning, how many went to the speaker and heard the rabbi speak? Oh, boy, when he, when he said that, he said that sentence, he threw it out there and he goes, you know, a good case can be made for the sexual relationship between Dave and Jonathan, and it could also be made that there was no sexual relationship, and he just threw that out there, and I could literally see people's hair starting to rise up. You know, it was like people were like, did he just say that? And I was like, did he just say that? And I'm just walking around. Uh, My concern is that a move or a shift on what I believe are the biblical principles taught there. My concern is that we as Christians can't talk about it without bristling. How on earth are we going to have conversation with the world that's lost? It is considered one of the biggest conversations among millennials and what they're now officially calling Gen Z in globally. 
And if we can't at least have the conversation, we have no place at the table. What else? Polity models. As I said, Paul's structure wasn't for everyone. It was intended for those churches that Titus and Timothy are working on. And we have applied it into our own setting, but we've given Americanized versions of it where we take a vote. Is that Bible or democratic process? I'm trying to figure that out. It's not Bible. Technical changes would include worship styles. Input from younger generations, letting leaders lead. What else could be there? So I want to talk about this uh, time change that we're about to announce on Sunday. By the way, if anybody's listening to my class from Northwest, I apologize you haven't heard about this yet. Um, we, uh, it was a beautiful moment. This was a beautiful moment. We proposed, the staff proposed a time change. It's a modest change. Put it out there, the elders and staff in there. We talked, we said this is a technical change. It was one of those meetings. We said this is a technical change. Not adaptive. We heard from several of the elders. They took a vote, and it was uh, five yes, two no, three abstentions. <clears throat> so he said, "Oh, so the vote carries." And I said, "Okay, we'll get back to you. We're going to probably have a meeting, conversate about what we just heard." So that week we got together. Staff said, uh, "It's a five-five split." Uh, abstention. Sorry. It's a 5-5 split. If I've got a 5-5 split in that room, I've got it in the auditorium. What else could we do? So we talked about it. We came back. And over the next three weeks, I had at least three of my elders come up and say, now I know you guys are talking about that time change, but once you hear it really clear, we voted yes. The staff has the decision. You guys can make it. I said, okay, but we're listening to you. So we came back and said, okay, we're, we're going to keep. We were going to one service is what we're doing for the summer. We're going to keep two services. We actually grew last summer through the summer. So we're, we get that we need to do that. And here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to make a change. And it was beautiful that that conversation I've seen some leaderships literally just get in fights and ugly attitudes towards each other ended up being an incredible experience. See, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Change is unavoidable. Adaptive change is what we're going to need bandwidth for. So the wasteless, the useless waste of energy and bandwidth on technical change debates. What do we have to do? We gotta find a way to minimize those. But we have made a heritage out of debating every little thing. Every little thing. And it's interesting, and it's sad, and it's important, and it's not, and it's disorienting, and it's necessary. So um, what I want to do is I want us to end musically for a reason. First of all, nobody goes away humming a sermon. But it's also true uh, that the scriptures talk about the beauty of a new song, right? Sing to the Lord a new song, right? This is a, is a newer song to me. It's not a new song. Come on up. Uh, it's not a new song. It's a newer song to me. But what was interesting to me was when I asked Piper to sing it. And she told me she doesn't sing it very well. She did. And I said... I still want you to lead it. 
and she led it, and I, every time she leads it, people want Piper to lead this song. So I want you, yeah, it's true. So I want you to stand up, sing. Some of you, how many of you know this song? I think most of you do. If you don't, you're going to love it. Okay, you'll go home and you'll tell people, let's do this. Okay? So with that said, we'll close the song and then uh, we'll be up here for some Q&A after.
we thank them again. This mountain that's in front of me will be thrown into the midst of the sea. Far be it from me not to believe, even when my eyes can't see. The Lord knows where we're going. The church, the kingdom will always outlast every nation, including the United States of America. Let's help that kingdom be the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being here. If you have some questions, please ask Piper. Um, no, we're glad to have you here. Thank you. If you'd like one of Mike's books, he has them for sale.